All right, welcome to More Score. We're excited to have our guest today, David Buckley. He's got a new big show on Netflix right now called The Sandman. Uh, he's also known for uh, scores like Nobody, starring Bob Odenkirk, The Good Wife, The Good Fight, uh, worked together with uh, John Powell on the Bourne series, uh, The Nice Guys with John Ottman, The Town with Harry Gregson Williams, uh, a couple Some of video stuff. games, Call of Duty Ghost, Batman, Arkham Knight. David, thanks for coming on More Score. Where are you right now, David? I am in southwest England in a tiny city called Wells, W-E-L-L-S. Not Wales, which is a lot of what a lot of people think, in a place called Wells. And we just moved here. We've been in Los Angeles for 15 years. We've been in Spain for three years. And now we're here. Wow. What? I don't know oh, that's interesting. I don't know if you're expecting that answer. No, I, I was is. expecting <laughs> Santa Monica, which is usually the answer. Well, <laughs> um, that, what brought you was, back to England? That, that would have been well, it was a sort of, um, you know, when I moved to, when I got the call to come to L.A. in 2006, it was from Harry Gregson Williams, with whom I wrote The Town. Um, he said, you know, come over for a few months, see what you think, um, give it a go. And that was 2006. And then in 2019 or 2020 or whatever it is, I thought, oh, wow, that three months has turned into 14 years. And I've now got three American children, an American mortgage, um, an American passport. Um, I didn't sort of, um, I just, you know, time just, everything just, everything, you know, all those projects you just mentioned, I, it's funny when you hear someone say it back to you, you kind of think, Christ, that's what's been keeping me busy. Um, and one thing, you know, leap rolls into the other. And then, and it was sort of like, I, you know, I wanted to check out, especially with kids, what it was going to be like to raise them outside of the States. And then of course the pandemic kicked in and changed plans again but we're just giving it a go and seeing seeing what it's like and uh, we miss the santa monica beautiful weather um but um we're lucky to have a you know a moment to just kind of experience a few different options so this is just kind of talking about your your career trajectory then you started um back i guess early mid 2000s that that first decade of the 2000s um but that was all in Los Angeles, basically, at that point? Was that the start of your kind of film scoring career basically started so. in in Los Angeles? Or where do you consider was the beginning of your journey? Well, that's the most obvious one in terms of sort of professional, you know, like a huge step to get me kind of where, where I take to get me where I am today. But I think there's lots of increments along the way. And I think most people's life stories are like that in any profession and you can actually trace things back to slightly weird and, and unusual places if when you actually spend a moment thinking about it. I mean, I, I mean, one I can put an absolute kind of light on is, funny enough, back where I am now in this very city, I used to sing in the, there's a big church here, a cathedral, um, and I used to sing in the choir when I was a kid, as funny enough did Harry. He was older, he was an adult, but, but we both sang in this place. Um, and... It was very traditional English, lovely, you know, normal things that you say, like Downton Abbey, but in a church. And then one afternoon, the, we got a phone call. Can you sing on this soundtrack to The Last Temptation of Christ? This Martin Scorsese film this, with this Peter Gabriel score. Ah, the phone call didn't come to me, obviously. It came to the bosses of the, of the choir. But um, we did it. And it was, I'd say, was that the beginning of my film scoring career obviously i didn't score the film i sang on it i think it left an indelible mark on 
an impressionable mind for someone who thought, wow, this is crazy. This is cool. This is probably something I want to do. And then I kind of, you know, went through college, university, all that stuff, got to London. And then I, I did commercials. I did TV shows. I did, I wrote music for theme parks, roller coaster rides. Um, you know, there was a whole toilet roll brand that had my music featured in it in the, in the early 2000s. And, you know, real <laughs> Making mom and dad process. proud, I'm sure. <laughs> real proud. <laughs> but then, you know, I got the call from hey, Harry. How, and he how, said, real, real quick, with the choir stuff, how old were you hmm. when that happened? And I, I, before we move too far ahead, I'm curious, as a kid, hearing your voice in a Martin Scorsese film, were you taking your friends to the theater and being like, that's me? Like what, what was going through your mind and, and what was that light bulb moment where you thought like, wow, this is crazy. Well, two things. First of all, that movie was like hugely controversial at the time. I mean, I think it, I think it came out in 1988 and it caused a lot of like bother blasphemy and all the rest of it. Which I think, funnily enough, if that movie were released today, I don't think anyone would bat an eyelid. I'd say it would probably quite tame. I've only actually seen the movie once, and not not at the time, because I would have been like very much not what my parents would have approved of. I think it was so bothersome <laughs> um, and so controversial that I don't know what percentage of our vocals actually made it into the final score because there was a there was a huge kind of thing you know an english choir shouldn't be working on this blasphemous thing because we were you know the choir is part of a religious institution i'm probably happy to say i'm a devout atheist so i couldn't give a shit um but um it was um <laughs> it was it, it was bothersome and and i think that had an effect on what was what what was on the what was actually used in the movie certainly the soundtrack album you know peter gabriel martin says it had our voices on it i to be honest it's a, it's a fucking, it's an interesting question you ask I don't think at the time it registered. I don't think it registered as something sensational. It just registered as something I thought this is just cool. Like they brought us some kind of screen into the place we were recording. I don't think they could show us too many images, but I was aware that there was moving image. Um, just, you know, guys bringing studio equipment in and it just felt like, I wouldn't say rock and roll, but kind of rock and roll. Peter Gabriel, rock and roll. I mean, it, it, it felt like something very different to the very um, prim and proper daily round of, of musical p performance. So it was disruptive, you know, and I and I welcomed it. But I wouldn't say I was starstruck by it or I was saying to all. I, I think I think sometimes as a kid, when you have those kind of crazy things, it's like you don't realize at the time. It's only after the event you kind of think back and think, Jesus, Martin Scorsese, Peace Gabriel. Um, but yeah, I, I attribute that to a sort of seed being planted and, 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 and probably a, a, a need to explore that whole world of music living alongside something else. Music not just operating on its own, but, but conjoining with other art forms and, and becoming something new, namely film. After that point, did you pick up an instrument and, and start to realize like, okay, I felt a little rock and roll. I was in the choir at that point, but now I want to, I want to jam or I want to be in a band or like what, what sparked uh, your kind of early music playing? Well, I picked up lots of instruments and 
played them all pretty badly. That's that's sort of been my a fairly consistent theme in my performance career. I'm, I'm not a performer. There's nothing about me which is a natural performer. But I'm an enthusiastic. I mean, I... I mean, I did. I was thinking about this the other day, actually, because I'm back on the turf where I used to go to school, and I was thinking, you know, I did. I did play keyboards in a rock band. Um, I was, you know, well, I wasn't cool. Let's be clear about that. I was not the cool guy in the band. I don't think any of us were cool, but I was the least cool. Um, but I did enjoy. It. In fact, I was playing sort of organ, Hammond organ. Uh, I did play jazz piano in a, in a jazz band. Um, I my approach to, to music, I think probably because of that kind of lightning bolt of um, Peter Gabriel coming into this English cathedral, I think I just embraced music entirely for what it is. And if I like it, I like it. And broadly speaking, I like pretty much anything. I've got a pretty eclectic taste of, of what, what I find enjoyable. Um, and I think that's been my sort of path. That, that's been my musical path. And, and I've, I feel very lucky that I've managed to put that into a job where I could utilise that overall enthusiasm for music um so you know i i don't consider myself a classical composer sometimes i don't even consider myself a composer i just consider myself someone who lends their sort of musicality to, to, to a film or a show or game or whatever it is um but i it, but it's just as well that i could find this because i knew i couldn't perform for a living and i think i would have been quite crushed if i couldn't turn it into something i did teach for a while and i really enjoyed teaching um but i i think i knew i wanted to do something more i wanted to add something that, 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 not not diminishing the role of teachers by the way um but um and were those kind of in those university years then when you started to you know say maybe performing isn't isn't my calling yeah i think by the time i was by the time i left university around 21 i'd moved to london a lot of my mates at that point had kind of gone on to to perform, take a like a postgraduate degree in performance or something like that. And I thought, well, that isn't me. So so what is it? And it was, I have to say, it was a fun decade in London because it was literally doing anything I could. If someone said it's musical and will pay you, I'd do it. I didn't give a damn what it was. Um the aforementioned toilet roll commercial, the the roller coaster ride, uh teaching somewhere helping someone out, uh, whatever, writing program notes for concerts, going to a wedding, playing some jazz. It, for me, it, I, and still to this day, because I don't come from, even I come from a family where music was important, I'm the first person in, in, in I mean, I haven't chosen my family, but I don't know of any other musicians who, who have had a professional musical life. So I don't take this for granted. I, I, I think, you know, I think the fact that I can earn a keep from, from, playing around in music is, is makes me a very sort of fortunate person. So can you then walk me from your university time to, and you know, the, the kind of, you know, first things that you started to explore in toilet roll composing, whatever odd jobs come up <laughs> musically and then how you end up in Los Angeles. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the critical part of me getting, toilet roll commercials and, sh and shampoo commercials was I had a buddy. Um, well, in fact, he, he lived not too far from where I was living and, and I was doing some teaching and someone said, oh, there's this guy. He's like, you know, he's a professional guy, plays guitars, um, but he wants a bit more like formal music training. He wants to know a bit more theory and, and how, you know, how the nuts and bolts work. And 
you know, he he's looking for someone, you know, twenty quid an hour, a couple of pints. Would you would you like to teach? I thought, why not? I could fit that in easily. So we met up and we did a couple of sessions. He was a really nice guy, and we we got on well. And he and I, by the third session, he, he sort of called me for one because you know I, I I don't think we should do this anymore. I was like, oh okay, fair enough, didn't work out. He goes, no, look, I'm going to get some briefs for commercials. I'll do all the guitars and all that stuff. You do the orchestra and all your side of things, and let's just do that. That's let's go about it that way rather than me giving you something, me trying to learn nice. the history of, of classical music once a week for the next 50 years. Let's just, let's just go at this together. So this guy, Keith Bailey, um, really good friend of mine. We just, we, he welcomed me into his world of jingles and we did a lot of TV. Yeah. You know, not, nothing uh, noteworthy. It was all, I mean, I have to say some of the commercials were noteworthy as much as they had some dollars attached to them back then, but the TV stuff was all, um, you know, fairly run-of-the-mill kind of reality stuff. But it was all good because it, it, it gave me an opportunity to sort of learn on the job. Um, and when I wanted to do something a little bit more, well, artistic, I, I, I got in touch with all the film schools and I said to all the left little notes for directors who were just making their short films or their finals project, I said, you need a composer. You know, I'll basically do it for you just pay whatever you can, which was always normally less than nothing, nothing, because I somehow managed to end up paying for something. But, um, but you know, again, it gave me an opportunity <laughs> to meet directors, understand their world, their language, their vocabulary, to score some short films, most of which were terrible. But um, it was, a, again, a, le a learning curve. And um, I, that was all just sort of going on concurrently. And as I say, I was very happy for that, mad existence of rushing from one thing to another and making sure that I could pay the rent just by adding all those bits up. And because I'd met Harry years ago in this prim and proper English cathedral environment, when I noticed him kind of getting, being like, basically, I, I remembered him singing in this obscure city and then I saw his name on the top of a massive film. I thought, hold on a minute, what's going on here? And I was able to kind of get in touch with him and obviously extremely fortunate that, um, you know, he took a liking to me and we met up and he gave me an opportunity. So, you know, I can't really attribute that part of things to anything other than someone I knew. You know, I was fortunate to, to, to have, you know, a great contact who I could, who I could get back in touch with. You, 2006 is the first uh, credit with... Harry Gregson Williams on Flushed Away, which is interesting because when we were making um, our documentary score, that was a score that he pulled up and set and showed us a scene that was really it, a kind of cool thing. I mean, again, like the movies, maybe not the greatest cinematic achievement ever, but the music is really cool for that. And so I was curious, you're just kind of connecting the dots, your uh, uh, take working with Harry on that first project. Did you feel like you were, you know, this was an, a kind of surreal environment or did you feel like you had some comfort level in, in what you were doing? Obviously you knew Harry. Yeah, I knew Harry, but I kind of knew him, you know, as a, I was a child and he was an adult at that. When we, our first meeting, there was a gener a significant generation difference, which obviously when you get older, you know, what, you know, I'm 46 now and Harry is, oh, you wouldn't want, to, want me to say how old he is, or you can find it out on Wikipedia, but yeah, he's 15 years older than me. So, um, <laughs> but when you're a kid, the difference between you know a 10 year old and a 26 year old you, you're just going to be polite they're your elder and you're better now now i'd say you know harry and i live very close to each other Santa Monica, we would on a 
more that often, well, not that often. We would go out for a drink in, in our local pub and, you know, we were, we were, we became very, and they still are very good friends. And he still takes a, a huge interest in what I do. And I, I hope I do the same to him. But that for me, when I went over there, you know, I thought because of all this stuff that I've just described to you in London, I thought, oh yeah, okay. I, I sort of know, I know roughly what's going on here. I, I know how to do this. And it took me about three hours of being there to realize that I didn't know anything. And that this was all very, very different, very high powered, very high level. And I needed to think quick, um, to survive. Um, because I was on a sort of, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't just like come to Hollywood and, and everything's going to play out for you. I, I, I knew this was a, I wouldn't say it was an initiation, but you know, Harry had said to me, I've got three jobs piling up, flushed away, deja vu and the number 23. And he had a big concert as well in Madrid. And he goes, he basically said he's overstretched. We'd already had some kind of conversation that if a moment presented itself, I'd love to kind of thing. And he goes, well, Dave, this is the moment because I've got a you know potential car crash of a schedule coming up. Um, but it was only when I really, you know, I remember hearing some of that music that you heard. And I'm now, funnily enough, have were you, did you come to Venice then? Did you come to a studio in Venice? No, it was all Santa Monica at the time. I think he's moved since. No, back then it would have been Venice. It would have been, which is obviously adjacent with Santa Monica. Flushed away. Would it was been, home studio. Ah, uh, okay. That was Santa Monica. I think I do remember seeing you guys there once actually, but that's just by the by. You, I was just sticking your face away from me. We crossed um, paths. Yeah. Yeah. We have, yeah. Um, but um, he played me some of the flushed away stuff, you know, just was coming out of his computer. And I thought, what the, how does this sound so good? You haven't even taken this to an orchestra. It already sounds sort of real and... And it, I suppose I did have that sense. It was a, one of those moments in one's life where you think I might. This is I'm either going to get on a plane and just kind of walk away from this because I don't feel adequate, or I've got this bloody far. And I did have to give up in England. I had to sort of say to all these things that I was doing. I'd say sorry, I'm going to LA, and everyone was pretty nice. I, said, I guess that's <laughs> there's a movie about this, you know, <laughs> like giving up your sort of everything and, and taking a gamble. So. It was equal measures of sort of feeling, I don't know if I can do this, to thinking I've got to give it a shot. And I guess I gave it a shot. I was useful. I think Harry and I got on really well. You know, in addition just to sort of a musical activity, we have this shared heritage um, from, the, from the English choir days. So, I mean, it, you know, it, yeah. I mean, it was uh, definitely, I did not, I will say this categorically, I did not come to LA. First of all, I did not come to LA and expect to get a career. I was certainly not the one that I've got. I thought that I'd just be a sort of backroom, helping pair of hands, helping someone get something over, over a finishing line when they time was a problem or clashing schedules. That's genuinely what I thought I might be able to do. Um, and I certainly, when Harry was able to get me my first movie, uh, I was sort of like, you sure i mean this isn't this isn't what was what i was thinking so i mean this makes it i i, have, <laughs> I don't know because you don't know me people listen how to long that. did that take it took a year from flushed away to did flushed away then i went had to go back to england to sort out some some stuff he did deja vu the tony scott film then i came back and worked on the number 23 which was a joel schumacher movie and at the end of the number 23, Joel said to Harry, I've got this Nazi vampire movie called Blood Creek coming up. Uh, there's not much money. Um, and Harry, he goes, so if you can't do it, could you recommend someone? And Harry goes, I've got just the guy. 
And I remember, I remember we just finished the number 23 recording sessions and I was back at the studio in Venice where we were. And Harry called me up and says, Dave, I've got you a film. And I thought he was winding me up. I thought this, this is like a, a joke. And he goes, <laughs> you can do this Joel Schumacher film. And I, I don't know. I must have probably had to pinch myself or have a beer more likely. <laughs> That's awesome. Were, what was going through your mind? Were you scared? What 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 was your first thought when you when you thought, "Wow, he's not joking." Yeah, I was I was, I probably would have been scared. Um but I think also back then I wasn't as jaded as I was now. So, I mean, I was like 31 <laughs> or something like that. So, I think there was also a sense of like being scared then. I think you can turn that into something positive. I think as you get older when you get scared, it's more troubling. Um, uh, because you kind of, think, well, why am I scared? Because I've got I've got all this life experience, so I should be less scared. So when you are scared, it's like it's truly traumatic. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of thought I don't know how to do this. But I also, you know, Harry was, the, you know, one of the fortunate things about being in that role and and Harry elevating me to to the role of a composer was that he was going to help me. He wasn't just going to say, "There's a film, you better not screw it up." Um, he'd sit in me with the meetings, he'd listen to the music, he'd advise me, um, tell me where he thought something was great, tell me he thought something really wasn't great. So I had a, you know, an, an incredible... That's huge. A huge. I mean, you know, to get that from a A-list composer, I mean, I, Jesus, I mean, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's it's extraordinary. Uh, you know, I'd like to think that I didn't burden him too much because he was busy. Um, I definitely, over the years and still to this day, would call Harry up and say, I've got a problem. Um, Only a year ago, I had a really big problem and I called him up about something and he kind of walked me off the plank. Um, I mean, that's, what can I say? Harry's provided not only the film going world with, with incredible scores, but he's helped, you know, me develop a a career and and others as well. I mean, it's uh, amazing. Nothing, nothing more to be said about that. Well, I mean, I could say a lot, but amazing kind of sums it up. And then obviously Harry and um, John Powell crossed over on the Shrek series and worked together a lot um, on that. Is that where you met John? Because uh, I know I first, at least I started to connect the dots of, of your name on Jason Bourne. And that soundtrack was so awesome. Um, I mean, I, I loved all of what John Powell had kind of done, but that one kind of evolved it in new ways. Um, and y- you co-composed that with John. Um, but how did you then connect with uh, with John Powell? How did how did Jason Bourne come about? Well, we, we actually sort of connect. Well, yeah, I obviously he, he and Harry have a long history with Shrek and then they do another one together. Um, did they do Ants together? I can't remember. Yes. Yeah. Chicken Run. Chicken Run. Chicken Run. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they've got that Ard- uh, Ardman DreamWorks legacy. So I helped on a couple of Shreks, but John wasn't doing those at that point. He'd sort of gone very much in his own direction. But, you know, everyone was Santa Monica bound or in the Palisades or whatever. And there was a party and I met I met John and we, we chatted, um, got on fine. I mean, nothing, we weren't, firm friends or anything, but, but, you know, enjoyed, as far as I could tell, enjoyed each other's company. And then there was actually a, a, a short, it was a spin off of how to train your dragon. Um, it was called the, the book of dragons. And 
very kind of low budget, low key. I mean, they didn't have money for orchestra or anything like that. And it wouldn't have been on John's radar because I'm sure he would have been busy doing a big, big, big feature film. Um, I can't remember. I think the music editor who was on the on the main film said, oh, you know, David Buckley might be a good candidate for that. It was this 15 minute thing. So I pitched for it and got offered it. So I that, that was the first time I got to play in the John Pitt, that's uh, sorry, John Powell sound, Jesus, John Powell sand pit um, was in a sort of how to train your dragon world. <laughs> the um, John Pitt. The John Pitt. Oh, doesn't sound, that sounds a bit, <laughs> doesn't do the man <laughs> the justice that he deserves. But um, I, even though, you know, we basically that and that little project, and it is a little project, it ended up, they, I think, Either end of the of the short, it was a piece of pal from from the sh- from the actual movie, and then I did the the guts of it. I did the middle where I wasn't actually using John's themes, but I was definitely alluding to his kind of Celtic world um, and um, kind of doing yeah riffing on on the pal kind of how to train your dragon style. And then I think John was someone who I then bumped into from time to time and occasionally sought his opinion right. just on sort of career stuff. Just, you know, I was, I don't, there can't be a composer in Hollywood who isn't impressed by John. I mean, his music, I mean, he's in a level which I think most of us could, could only dream of attaining, but he's also quite a savvy bloke. And I realized this when I met him at, at, at parties and things like that, that he, he, he had an interesting take on things um, you know, I don't, you know, John isn't, as far as I can tell, he isn't someone who sort of shouts on the rooftop. But when you actually engage with him and you, and you hear what he's got to say, it's it's a he has a very interesting angle. So I, I, as someone who was trying to find their feet and who'd had yeah little moments of success, but then moments of like not quite sure what was going on next, I, I sought out his opinion, and he said something to me was quite funny. He said he was a he enjoyed watching the good as it was then the Good Wife and and the Good Fight. And he goes, you know, Dave, what I love that you're doing now is you're writing this sort of classical kind of score and it's so different to like standard television music, so different to like it's it's you're you're not doing the norm, and I love that. And John is quite a contrarian, I think he'd be the first to admit that. And he goes, I just love that you're you're doing that. And he goes, and he goes, My advice, if you get the next time you get a thriller, offered a thriller, just go and do your classical stuff. Just put it in there. If you get fired, you get fired. It doesn't matter. You've you've still got your show, you'll 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 be able to pay the bills. He goes, just, just go and like confound expectations and do that. And I said, are you sure? And he goes, yeah, just go and do it. You'll be fine. Roll on six months. John calls me, says, I've got a bit of a problem uh, for various reasons. I can't do this movie, Jason Bourne. Would you, I can't do it by myself. Would you want to come on and do it? I said, geez, of course I would. And he goes, do you remember that conversation we had about you doing your classical stuff? Nah, don't do it on this one. Don't don't do that. Just give me. <laughs> don't get fired that, on this. Well, one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So all that well intentioned and and sort of liberating and mind open opening advice, um, extremely well meant. He's like, no, 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 no. We have the we have the toe party line here, and we did. Paul Greengrass called me when when it was seemed like a good fit, and he said he was worried because you know I think he wanted John and John couldn't commit. Uh, and he didn't, Paul Greengrass didn't know who I was. So he had a chat with me and he goes, Dave, you know, I want, I want this to be, a, I want to get the band back together. I want this to be a classic born score. Um, he goes, you know, no real inventing of the wheels necessary. We've got what we need. We just need to make it work with the film. And, you know, that was the brief. Um, no point in me arguing with 
Frank Marshall, Paul Greengrass, Universal Studios. I'm not you know, not in that business of arguing with people like that. Um, and it was, you know, so the exercise for me was, what can I do with it so I feel relevant? Um, you know, I I would hate to think that I was nothing more than an arranger or or mere regurgitator, but I do also know. I know, I know I've read all sorts of comments about that score. Um, some from gushing praise to people dismissing it as absolute complete trash and, and oh. pointing the finger at me for making it so I, whatever it's fine the film did pretty well um, well I loved it, it. Yeah. <laughs> but you know it, it was it's just one you know that's the job that I'm paid to do it's to it's to it's to figure out what what the a fire needs putting out a problem needs solving and the problem here was that we have a legacy of music no pun intended um, written by John, he can't commit. They liked me. They liked some of the music I'd written for other projects, which is how I got this. They, so they liked my sensibilities. So I had to just figure out how to navigate that, how to bring whatever I could to the party and when to step back and let and let the original sound come forward. It's servicing the drama and it's making the director happy. And those are the, you know, in, in this instance, I certainly knew, because I did, I will say, I did try in at the very beginning to kind of go against what the what the conversation had been and I did try and present something a little bit different and it was I was thanked for it but I was thanked and I and then followed by a no thank you can we have <laughs> more traditional right. kind one of, of those yeah going. so you know it's fine it's it's I mean I'm in a commercial business here one of the things that I loved most about the pandemic <laughs> if there is anything to love about it is that the movie nobody came from that time period and we were able to watch that. Um, I, I feel like that movie would have been way more well received if it went to theaters. Um, you know, that was a weird time, but the movie was terrific. It caught me off guard was, how did they find you for that? Was that because you had connection? Cause when people ask what it was about, I was like, think, Better Call Saul and Jason Bourne crossed, and Bob Odenkirk's <laughs> a of. badass, and yeah. it's a the the score is rocking. At times, it feels a little noir. Like, wh- how did you connect with that film, and and what were your initial thoughts when you saw Odenkirk kicking ass on the screen uh-huh. like that? Well, I think the reason I got a shot at doing the movie was because I'd done um, Bourne, which is a universal big universal brand, so I got to know kind of the the music department there. Um, and I'd also done a lot of work on the Fifty Shades franchise um, alongside Danny Elfman. Mm. Danny was the, you know, the, the named composer, but he um, kind of utilized me to help get through some of the material. Uh, again, I was visible. I wasn't. No one was hiding me away in a dark room. I was at the recording sessions. I was in the director meetings. I was all sort of present. And so I think Universal, there was, I wouldn't say they owed me a favor that I'd kind of helped with these, you know, big Fifty Shades things and Jason Moore. So not, no one owes me a favor. But I think they were, well, I, I think I might say that they kind of liked me and they thought I was competent. So I, I think that, that this little, I mean, it was a little movie, you know, it wasn't much money. I, I, you know, when they said what I was getting paid, I thought, surely there's some numbers missing from here. It was like, nope, that's what you're getting paid. Um, <laughs> and, um, but what I loved about that, oh, well, sorry, to answer your question. Um, so, yeah, I think I was on a short list because I had this prior relationship with Universal um, and I had a chat 
uh, I can't put a date on this now because everything, like for everyone, feels like a blur. I can't, you know, the 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 first couple of years of, of this uh, decade, I can't really figure out what happened in twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one, and even the end of nineteen is. I now know, yeah, we're all in that boat. Anyway, I had a conversation with him at a Christmas time before the film shot. I'm kind of inclined to say. 2019, but I could be wrong, could be 2020. Anyway, awesome director, Ilya, can never quite pronounce his second name, Russian, so I won't try and pronounce his second name, and apologies if he's not what, listening to this. Um, he did like Hardcore Henry and stuff too, Henry. a lot of these like kind of crazy fight movies. Yeah, yeah, he's he's like a bold, he's just cool, he's like a crazy Russian, um, and um, in the best possible sense of the words. Um, and um, we we chatted and he seemed to like me uh, on the phone and I guess I got a call saying yeah you you, know, you could do it and um, I read the script and I thought the script was cool but I, I mean it didn't really tell me what the movie was going to be and only when I saw it I thought wow this is this is amazing and Bob Odenkirk has you know he's done what Liam Neeson's done but he's done it in, in his own Bob Odenkirk way and what I love about the movie. Is I think it's kind of the perfect pandemic movie. Um, it was it's lean and mean, like it's barely ninety minutes, um, and yep, I just think it ticks a whole load of boxes. I mean, it's you know that bus fight is just badass, is brutal and is badass, and he punches the bloody guy's throat to, for, for a tra tracheotomy, um, and then it's funny as well. Um, you know, the the dad is kind of really hilarious and. And at moments, it's poignant, you know, his, his relationship with his wife and how the dysfunction of their marriage, and he's got this past that he can't kind of figure out and his present, which he can't figure out. So for me, it just, in 90 minutes, it just ticks all these boxes. Um, awesome songs used in the film, um, you know, which is, is always fun. I mean, some, yeah, I, I could say to myself, oh, I want to do that bit, but actually... No, let, let Frank Sinatra do that bit. He, he's pretty good. <laughs> um, and, and I can, you know, I can figure <laughs> out a way of, of making my music kind of weave in and out of all that stuff. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a real fun project. And I, I loved how well it was received. Um, and I, there's noises about there being the second one. And that would be awesome. If they asked me back, I'd love to do it. Ooh, love that. Yeah, if you haven't seen that, go, go watch that movie. Because yeah. I feel, like I said... What I meant was it would have been more it would have been well received at the theater. Obviously, the critics loved it. Everyone loved it that I saw that you know that saw it. Um, yeah, mercifully, it didn't need to make. I was just going to say it didn't like because it wasn't massive. You know what the worst thing about that film would have been had it had it had a huge production budget because then it would have there'd have been no talk of any future. But it was the right time to be making a, yeah. a slim, slim micro budget movie and getting a star like you know. I think yeah. this probably puts Bob Odenkirk into the sort of, he can hold an action movie, which, you know, I don't think For before sure. that anyone would have said that. Um, so it really, a lot of stars aligned and, yeah, it was for me one of the best things that have come from from what was a pretty crappy time for, for lots and lots of people. And like you said, it was refreshing to see a runtime that was less than three hours for a film. Yeah, it's always nice when you're like, oh, okay, we don't have to like invest half our day into exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, We've had you for quite a bit here, but um, let's get to the main course. Uh, the Sandman okay. is out. Uh, if you haven't checked it out yet, this is a massive, I mean, the score is big. The film is big. The world we're in is infinite. 
Um, the effects are incredible. What was your first, uh, how was this presented to you? And the, the, the main title theme is, I, I, it fits so perfectly with this. How quickly did you jump on that? And, and how did you find that sound of the show? Well, I, I prevaricated, as, as I often do at the beginning of things, because I'm quite a fast writer. Um, I, I can write relatively quickly, but that, that's a blessing and a curse, because unless you've got good editor, self-editorial discipline, you can sort of say to yourself, especially with a show like this, where you've got you know, 10 episodes with loads of music, you can sort of say to yourself, oh, done, tick, done, tick, where... I think a big part of the, the creative process for anyone doing anything, poet, poets, writers, artists, is is the ability to kind of say, well, that doesn't work. Um, and sometimes you don't realize that, you know, until day two, week two, month two. Um, you know, the famous thing of, you know, working late at night, reviewing your work in the morning and being horrified. Um, you know, I think I think every <laughs> every creative person has kind of gone through that. And so, you know, this, the show, given its enormity, it had, as is fitting for a show with that sort of vast aspirations, it had quite a big post-production schedule. Um, so I I got in, you know, I wouldn't say early, early, but relatively early, certainly early enough to have some quite long and um, kind of getting under the surface conversations about what the show is, well, what the comics were, what the show is, um, what the characters are, what we want to feel, what we're trying to do for an audience, and just have sort of conversations like this, you know, not getting too much into, you know, themes or, or what, what instruments. We obviously, we had those conversations, but we didn't have to start there. And that was great for me because I didn't, you know, I didn't really know much about this universe. I was aware of it. Um, but to, for the beginning of my process to actually be a kind of learning the, the folklore, the mythology of all of this was, I mean, it was vital that I did that. And that, I think, helped me. It didn't give all the answers, but it, it, it certainly, you know, learning what any film or any TV show or any game, learning the kind of the nuts and bolts, the, the DNA, the ge genetic material, kind of looking at that squarely in the face, I think is, I think is an absolute necessity to... to so that then you feel like then you can start like fumbling around on the keyboard and, and trying to come up with something. And it really was Dream's character, that opening theme that you hear at the very beginning of the first episode. I, I felt that when I landed on that, and that took a while, and it took, you know, a lot of people to kind of hear it and embrace it before it was signed off on. You know, Neil and David Goyer, Alan, the showrunner, Netflix, Warner Brothers, DC Comics, I'm sure millions of other people I don't even know we're in the, you know, in the mix and all this. But um, when I found that, and it took a while, a few iterations, when I, when I landed on that, I knew it was going to be my friend for navigating through what is very eclectic storytelling. Um, you know, the first seven episodes are so, um, you know, we're jumping around. We're, we're kind of genre surfing and, and moving from one location, one historical uh, time period, from reality to present tense, you know, sorry, to unreality to present tense. So that would have been difficult to do without knowing I've got at least one thing that can be with me through all of that. And then, of course, with that comfort, mm -hmm. then I can start looking at the environments that I'm in 
and saying, okay, here we are in hell. What, what's the music for hell or for Lucifer? Here we are with Joanna Constantine. What's her theme? But knowing that I've got this through line with Dream is, it was, was, yeah. I mean, that, that was my, I think if I hadn't done, if I, if I hadn't started in episode one, and it's funny though, because episode one is an episode where Dream is kind of captive for most of it. He isn't, um, yeah. You know, he doesn't, I don't know if he has any line. No, he does towards the end of the episode. But he is not, you know, in any sense a traditional, a, he's ve- very seldom a traditional hero figure. And given the fact he's locked up and sort of semi-dying in, in the first episode, it makes him particularly kind of unique and possibly particularly challenging to say, well, this is his sound, this is his identity. But it had to be figured out. And I think ultimately that helped me, you know, thread a, a needle through what was a fairly you know, ornate. Yeah. I mean, cause that was always the sentiment about this as a series was how do you, you know, the book has, how do you adapt this? You know, how do you adapt this into a series? All of the jumps make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I've read. I mean, I tried to keep a lot of the, the kind of fan comments and noise out of my ears until we were done, because I thought, you know, it's, it's impossible to please everyone. And, There'll be a lot of opinions out there because they people have tried to make a movie of this, try to make a show at least once before. And I think there was a verdict that this is unfilmable. Um, so the fact that it has been filmed and it does seem to, I think from what I can tell, having now after years of kind of shunning social media, I've just dipped my toe in because it seems like the sort of project where you kind of think, well, why oh, dangerous. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, I know, I yeah. know. Well, I'm well aware where the d- delete. You think you're button. dipping your toe in the pool and it's lava. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, yeah. But I would say, you know, <laughs> I, from my investigations, it seems like the fans like it, and and my mum, who's eighty, who is not a fan, very well reviewed so far. Yeah, very well reviewed, and I think it's I think it's equally as appealing to people who don't know the, the the background story and just coming to this as, as fresh drama. I think it entertains. I think it keeps people leaning in and invested. Um, I think there's something fresh about it. And um, I hope there's, you know, more to come because I, I mean, we've barely scratched the surface of all, of all the stories Neil's written. So I think it'd be really nice to see what dream gets up to next. And, 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 I don't know anything about what might be in the future, but I, one assumes there's going to be lots more you know, crazy scenarios, characters and, and, and landscapes to, to score. So, you know, crossing fingers. Yeah. I love the way you bend the, I don't know if it's a xylophone or bells, but that, that theme, the way it's like pitch bending, it's I, I can't get enough of it. Every time it comes in, I'm like, yes, give me more. Of this. <laughs> well, that, you see, that's funny. So that's, that's my motif, I think for, for the, for the, like for the dreaming. So this, you know, uh, this unrealistic world and it's a sort of unrealistic sound because it is, it's a, yeah, it's a Celeste, which up until two days ago, I thought it was physically impossible for a Celeste to do that organically. I actually spoke to someone, a percussionist who said, actually, you can do it by dipping it in water or something. I, I don't really know how that would work, but, um, but anyway, it's, 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 oh. it's manipulated, it's manipulated electronically. So what I wanted to do is take a, as I pretty much have done throughout the score is take organic sounds, um, that you kind of think, oh yeah, that's a bell. And then you go, oh, but hold on a minute. It's, it's kind of waning and waxing and doing something a little bit weird. And I, I, I just wanted to keep a presence of that, slightly surreal slightly off kilter 
not knowing quite where you are, kind of there all the time, even with the grand orchestral statements, you will probably still hear some little notion of of weirdness just kind of buzzing around somewhere. So yeah, is the someone said to me, "Oh, you've written a, a traditional score." I said, "Yeah, I think it's it's heart has definitely got traditional values with themes and orchestration and harmonies which evolve." Um, but I still think there's this this is kind of weird spinning that's going on throughout. Well, I, I know there is because I wrote it and it's there, yeah. and I hope that that's registered by. by <laughs> and he, actually, and whether it's registered or not consciously, a lot of this is to be subconscious that it's it's that. You're watching something and you're, you, you kind of think, you, you sort of, and it, but as you leave a scene, you're kind of left feeling a, a slight sense of, oh, what was that? And you're like, you can't necessarily put your finger on it and it's not declaimed. It's not, it's not, like it's sometimes reserved and, and not, not shoved in your face. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in letting audiences figure some stuff out for themselves. Kind of like waking up from a dream and like you kind of, there you go. I think, I, well, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I think one has to think, obviously there's a story to be told, but there is an aesthetic. And, you know, I, I did think that to me, those bells have this kind of weird dream. And also, you know, Dream, the Sandman, he ain't like, he isn't like a good guy 100%. You know, there's times when you look at him, you think, eh, you're kind of kind of a bit of a dick. Um, and that's not cool. And, you know, that's nasty. <laughs> And so, you know, I didn't want those bells to be, I didn't want it like to be a pretty, I didn't want the dreaming just to be pretty or, you know, oh, now we're falling to sleep and it's all like lovely lullaby. Uh, I wanted other, th you know, I wanted this slight kind of oddness and also melancholy. I mean, there's something kind of sad about dream. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's what I loved about the show. I think it inspired in me looking at characters like death for example that see death would be on the other end of the spectrum where that character is so we're so familiar with the concept of death the grim reaper being sort of doom and and dear and all that kind of stuff but she is she's beautiful and she's there to help you at your end in the most gorgeous lovely possible fashion imaginable and i tried to write a, a cue a trap that kind of sold that notion that this is a beautiful death's warm embrace kind of thing. Well, you killed it on this show. Um, for those watching and listening, go check out the Sandman, uh, David Buckley. This has been a lot of fun chatting with you. I'm looking forward to, for, to, to more stuff coming up. I know you got a movie coming up with Ger Gerard Butler, Kandahar. That's right. Yep. And um, anything else on the horizon that you can talk about? Uh, well, uh, the final season of a show that I've worked on for 12 years, uh, which started life as a good wife and is now the good fight. And when I hang up this call with you, I shall check my email to see what revisions I have to make to the music. Um, <laughs> it's still a part of the process, yeah. even after 12 years. Um, that'll finish. And then that's it, really. Uh, Kandahar has got to be done in the next month. So I'm, I'm kind of tempting fate by saying it but i am genuinely looking forward to it to a moment of um recharging batteries and um and uh just kind of being quiet but having said which 
I also know my agents just called me. Um, so that may, my plans for a little bit of peace and quiet. <laughs> yeah. That could change in about five minutes from now. Yeah. <laughs> it could easily change in five minutes. Right. So um, it might just, it might just be a dream. Well, we, <laughs> there you go. you're a busy guy and uh, we, we really appreciate your time and especially working with the uh, time change and everything. So best of luck with everything. David Buckley, thanks for coming on more score, man. Thanks, David. Thanks guys. Thank you.